Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer. And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And this is My Name is Not Steve. We are still not named Steve. Nope, we are storytellers that talk about storytelling. So what are we talking about today? Storytelling. Hmm, which part? The story and the telling. It's super interesting. Yeah. Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where we talk about... Storytelling. Yeah, oh, that's a good idea. We should do that. I think so. Yeah. Let's just change it up. Yeah, I didn't like my original idea. I didn't either. Which was storytelling. <laughs> I thought it's more important to do the storytelling. See, the inflection changes everything. Or storytelling. Ooh. No, I like the second one. Well, it's still your idea. So let's just dismiss <laughs> it outright. That's right. And let's think, ooh, let's do storytelling then instead. Okay. And let's agree on that. All right. So, Dorothea, um, today I wanted to talk about you hear a lot of people, especially younger people, talking about following their muse. Do you? I do, yeah. Oh, they they call me, they email me. It's very, very common. No, you hear a lot of the phrases like, you know, you know, do what you love and things like that. that and is there's true. there's a place for that, I think, in the world. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you're going to make a living at it, though. That is an accurate statement. Yeah. That the, is a truth fact. Yes. The, the world is not waiting for a bunch of artists to enter the workforce, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I find it very funny that a lot of people in my generation feel called to do things creative and to make a living doing something creative while simultaneously pirating all of their entertainment. <laughs> yeah, it's like a moral dilemma. Yeah, well, people are stupid. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> so you're calling your generation stupid? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> no second thought there? Yeah. I think they're great. And I think they read a lot of books. And I think they should start with mine. And they should buy it. It's I think, cheap. <laughs> I think every generation has a lot of potential I think my generation has an issue in general wanting to actually do hard work, at least in my experience with the people that I've met in school. In your lifetime, in, in your my experience. Lifetime, yeah. In my experience. Now, I could be very wrong, so there's always that. Yeah, maybe just your friends stink. That's that's probably true. <laughs> actually, I can't say that because one of my friends is one of the most hardworking people I've ever met. A lot of your friends are really nice, hardworking people. I don't know where you're getting this from. High school. High school? You were only in high school for two years. That's true. It and, was. And that doesn't really count. They were freshmen and sophomores. They don't know anything. But do you remember when I told you I was having a really hard time at school because I felt like my brain was going to explode listening to some of my friends' conversations? Yes. And then you drove them home and you understood? Yes. <laughs> Let me see if I can recreate that conversation in the car. I'm driving you. You're in the front seat, right, with me. And they're in the back seat. And these two girls are, I think, sophomores at this time. And they're like, um, John Smith. <laughs> John. <laughs> that was like the whole The whole ride. car ride. They literally did not say any other word. No. His name and giggles. Mm-hmm. And then giggles and his name. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But again, that could just be my limited experience. I haven't met everyone in my generation. I feel like that would take a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot of people who work really hard and are raised to work hard. My dad always taught me that it doesn't matter what you do, everything you do is a reflection of who you are. So you should give 100%. So if you're digging ditches, you dig ditches to the best of your ability because it represents who you are. If you're mopping floors or whatever, it's all the same. And I've always taken that to heart. So even though there have been jobs that I've had that I didn't really enjoy doing, I mean, it, like, you know, it didn't further my overall goal in my life, 
but it was fulfilling a need at the time, like, you know, income. I still did the best that I could with that job, even though I wasn't passionate about it, because it's a reflection of me. And uh, I think so many people think about following their muse as some sort of magical trip or journey or something where... Well, it can be, if you've got the right supplies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's so much... All of it is work. Like, all success is work. All the overnight successes in Hollywood took about 10 years to get there. Our friend Elise Kova released her first novel, fantasy novel, Air Awakens. And it's kicked off really, really well. But that's because she spent the last seven years building up an audience, releasing material. Everyone will think that she's an overnight success. And it's taken years and years of continual work to become, quote unquote, an overnight success. But the reality is she's been working on this for, for years. Well, and also when we talk about her work ethic, when we say that she's been working consistently for like seven years, it's not just that she's been working hard for seven years. She works hard on another level of (laughs) human work because, and she's told me this, she doesn't know how to be bored. She can't just sit down and relax and watch television. She has to be doing something. And her sister's the exact same way. So the two of them have accomplished so much in their lives that whenever I talk to either one of them, I'm just like, you know, you guys could tell me that you've started a colony on the moon and I'd be like, great, when can I visit? (laughs) So she needs some lessons in television watching. You know, (laughs) there's a whole bunch of Star Trek episodes she should catch up on. Well, actually, she watches a lot of anime television because she loves it and she runs Mm -hmm. an anime podcast that is listened to globally and is has paid advertisers so even her watching television is not it's not wasted time it's not wasted time that's i love people like that that can take everything they do and convert it into something bigger i think that's like a natural gift that people have i mean it all takes work right that's the whole point all these following your muse stuff takes work but some people just have an innate ability to kind of see the opportunity or maybe they're just really good or unafraid of promoting themselves i don't know what that is i i do struggle with my self-promotion piece Maybe that's part of it. But Muse following is great. And you have to kind of figure out where you want it to fit in your life. The one thing I've learned about things is it all comes down to quality of life. And you can either try to make your Muse the number one thing, your job, or you can make it your hobby, or you can make it a second job or one of those things. But it all depends on where your quality of life is, what's the most important to you. And I agree with that. I think that where my frustrations come from with that whole idea of following your muse, is that at least, again, in my experience, there's been a lack of willing to put in the effort that is absolutely required to make that a reality for yourself. I remember being in college, and I graduated college early because I could, and college is expensive. And when you are just racking up those student loans and that's on your mind, you're going to finish as soon as you can. But when I would tell my classmates that, they'd be like, well, why are you doing that? And I'm why like, are you rushing through the college experience? Why are you experience? rushing through the college experience? Like, don't you want to take those years and just enjoy life? And and discover things. Go to parties. And I didn't drink in college at all because I was underage. I graduated college when I was 20. So yeah. I didn't break yeah. the law, to put unlike it in order, most people. Yeah, to put it in order, you left high school early to go to early college. So you graduated high school with an AA. So when you were in college, you only had like two and a little over two years to finish. So... Yeah, you were you were way ahead. I would have graduated when I was nineteen, but I changed my major. Yeah, so that's unfortunate. But at the end of the day, it's it's a difference in belief of what work ethic should be. I believed that, and I still believe that you should put in the work and get it done as quickly as possible. And a lot of people think that you should just kind of meander and and things will just happen for you. Yeah, there's a false expectation that you you can discover your way to money. 
And you really can't. That just takes work. And I, I don't know, maybe it's because your generation is the participation trophy generation where they haven't been taught that hard work equals rewards, but that any work equals rewards. And that's that's really setting people up to fail. It drives me nuts when people are so worried about making their kids feel good that they don't realize they're setting their children up to fail and be miserable for the rest of their lives. I mean, that just drives me nuts. One of the things that was really interesting to me is there was this documentary about, um, I think his name's James McNamara, James McNamara. And he was responsible for a lot of the decisions in regards to the bombings at the end of World War II. When he was growing up, he was in a a classroom that the teacher organized the seats based on who was the number one student in class, number two, and so on. The first desk on the left-hand side was the number one student. The one behind them was the number two student and would go back and then go down the rows. And he and this other guy fought all year long. Every week they were reassigned based on their scores. And it caused competition. And he and this other guy spent their entire year going back and forth, back and forth. But that's where he learned to push themselves. And now we're we're so worried about whether people feel good about life, that we're setting them up to be miserable for their adulthood because it's full of unfulfilled expectations. And I think there's a balance to that. I mean, growing up, one of the phrases that you said to me more often than not was suck it up. Whenever I was complaining about something that you didn't really feel was worthy of complaint, you'd just be like, yeah, well, life's hard, suck it up. But at the same time, you balance that out with being a really supportive and loving father. So it wasn't like this really harsh environment all the time. And that's what I think life is, because we've learned nowadays there are a lot of kids who have really bad anxiety and they need to learn healthier ways to cope with stress. And that may not be an ideal environment for them if they're constantly feeling pressured. But at the same time, you have to balance that out with when you have no expectations, people are going to live down to them. But then again, if we're looking at society nowadays, nothing that we value on a cultural level is really healthy. We value like binge consumption, whether it's food or entertainment. We value hedonism. We value just kind of doing whatever you want, whether that's drinking or doing drugs or whatever. It's like, oh, it's your decision. It's your life. Do whatever you want. And then, you know, people are upset when they find that they don't have any marketable job skills and they're overweight. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Like this is kind of, you know, one plus one equals two situation. Yeah. Well, they're always surprised by consequence because, again, they've grown up not really understanding consequence. But the point of that is that if you're going to follow your muse, it will take work. A lot. Depending on where you want it in your life, whether you want it to be your first job, a second job, or a hobby. But no matter what you do, whenever you're going to follow your muse, the thing I would really recommend is that you learn the craft that you're entering as much as possible. Human nature and humans are very predictable and repeatable as far as behavior. So there are paths to success already. There are people that have done exactly what you want to do and are successful at it. And they can either be people you know or people that are successful that you can research online. But either one of those can be mentors into how to do what you want to do, depending on the level that you want it in your life. Too many people come in and go, well, I just want to write, and I want to write short stories only, and it's memoirs about my childhood, and I want to make a lot of money from that. Well, if you look at the marketplace, memoirs almost never sell, and short stories almost never sell. Just because you want it to be your number one income source, that's not reality, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a mentor who has done that, who hasn't lived some sort of extraordinary life, like survived the Holocaust or survived the Rwandan massacres or something like that. And unless your story equals that, you're going to have a problem. But the point is, there are mentors out there, either virtual or real, 
that you can learn from. And I think it's really important to learn as much as you can about it so that you don't make the same mistakes everyone else has made. And and the great thing about that is once you learn those rules, you can then decide whether you're going to follow all of them or not. I mean, sometimes originality is taking something that has never been done before, but doing it in a way that has been successful before, maybe in another genre or another media. The second piece of following your muse is to learn as much about the craft as possible. I absolutely agree with that. It's kind of like, this is going to sound weird, but it's kind of like knowing your enemy, right? If you're about to go into a business transaction, you need to know everything about your competitor. And that's what you're doing. You're diving into a new market. You need to know everything that you possibly can in order to be successful. Because if you dive into a swimming pool without the ability to swim, as I have done, you, uh, <laughs> it's not going to go well for you. Were you, you dove into a pool on purpose, not knowing how to swim? Yeah. I mean, there were people in there, so I figured I'd be fine, but... Wow. When did this happen and where was I? When I was a kid, I was taking (laughs) swimming lessons. Just like, get in. I may have had floaties on. I don't really recall. (laughs) So... Either way, the process was not well thought out. Yeah. Yeah. And plus, you didn't know whether the shallow end or the deep end and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. It's a problem. But you have to learn as much as you can. So one of the things that I am guilty of, Dorothea is that if I am interested in anything, I am all consumed with knowing everything about that thing. Mm -hmm. So when we were talking about making a Christian film company, and we talked a little bit about this before on previous podcasts, but I wanted to watch every Christian film I could come across. Yes, I remember. Man, a lot of those were not good. They were so bad. Yes. So bad. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because I don't want to talk about them being bad. But I do want to talk about that just because you feel called or you have this muse that you want to answer doesn't mean you're going to be any good at it. Mm. And there's this misconception in Christian films and in Christian entertainment, I think, that because the Lord calls you to do something, that means you're going to make a lot of money or you're going to be really successful at it. And we talked about this before, and I don't want to go down it too far, but, but oftentimes that's tied to just the Lord wants you to do this at this moment because it helps you get closer to him. And has nothing to do with succeeding in this world, but preparing you for the next. But people need to understand that just following your muse and putting the work in, sadly, doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be successful. That is true. Right? And you're just going to have to keep, if it's really important to you, you're going to have to keep uh, adjusting then. If you think you really have talent and you've gotten enough feedback that, that says that you have talent, then really the issue is getting your material to the right hands. It's not whether it's any good or not. But a lot of people aren't honest with themselves. And again, I think that goes back to really analyzing the market that you're going to enter. So when we were in Christian films, we studied all of those. We always laugh about it because there were just so many that were had really good ideas, just not just poorly executed. Mm -hmm. So immerse yourself in, in what you want to do next and immerse yourself in the successes of your muse. When my son, for example, was playing baseball before he got injured and he couldn't play anymore, you know, colleges were interested in him. And I watched college baseball nonstop because that's just the way I'm wired. I have to know all about it. When I wanted to relearn or kind of like recatechize myself in my faith, I took it upon myself and I'm still in this phase where I try to read as much as possible about that because that's just the way I am. When we wanted to go from taking our movie ideas and turning them into novels, well, I had to learn as much as I could about writing novels. And a lot of that, as we've spoken before, was just hashing out words and making mistakes and fixing it. I mean... Think about this way. If you want to be successful, are you willing to put in the 10,000 hours? You've heard that phrase before. 
There's a theory where anyone who is a success at anything has put 10,000 hours into it to be successful. If you're going to start your muse today, if you're going to start painting today or sculpting or writing or whatever, are you willing to put in 10,000 hours before you're any good? Because that's the difference, I think, between having an idea that you want to do something and actually wanting to do something. People do what they want to do. Now, people say they want to do a lot of things, but people only do what they want to do. So people who want to be writers, let's say, well, are you willing to write two novels and 100 drafts and you know probably a half a million words and throw it all away because it's not any good, but you learned a lot from it? Are you willing to put in that time and effort to actually grow in skill. It's a difference between having an idea that you want to build a house and actually buying the material and building the house kind of thing. Well, and it's kind of like when I was an actor. One of the most important things you can do as an actor is audition. And Mm -hmm. not just because you want to get the roles, but because auditioning is hard. It's definitely a skill. It's really uncomfortable. Because whether you're a film actor or a stage actor, you're used to having a second to get into character and to just have to go into a room and be like, all right, here are your lines, do this and this and this, and and be able to take direction immediately. It's a very high-pressure situation. When I was growing up, I did a lot of theater classes. I went and did summer camps and went to a very professional theater, actually, and took classes there as well. So I had a lot of theater teachers throughout my childhood. And when I went to high school, there was this really great magnet school nearish to where I lived. And no, not nearish, because I drove you there every morning at five. I said ish. No, ish, ish. That's outside the bounded. It's not no, because it's still <laughs> yeah. in the same county. So that so that's we, ish. We live in a large <laughs> county. It was not ish. All right. It was ish. No. So anyway, when I went to go audition for this magnet program for high school to study theater more seriously. Oh, it turned out that two of the teachers that I'd had growing up were going to be teachers at the school and they were going to be in the audition. So I was really excited because they were two of my favorite teachers and I learned so much from them. But one of them was incredibly, incredibly intimidating. Even if he likes you, even if he thinks you have talent and potential, he is terrifying He's this huge guy, 6'4", 6'5". Yeah, he's really tall, right? He's massive. He's really broad-shouldered, too. And um, he's got a very critical face. Like, he'll look at you, and one eyebrow will be raised, and it kind of looks like he's scowling, but he's just thinking and taking notes. And he wears glasses, so he's looking at you from over his glasses. And, you know, the table was rather short, and he's this massive guy. So you just see this huge man (laughs) sitting over a table. He had a really deep voice as well. So he's sitting hunched over this table, staring at you critically over his glasses with a really deep voice. And we were all in the room for the auditions and everyone went one at a time. And I was either last or second to last, but I was one of the last people to go. And that's not helpful at all when you've been watching other people audition for about two hours. Because that just makes you second guess all of your choices, but you have to stick with what you've practiced because if you go off book, then it could be terrible and disastrous and you just, you have to trust your instincts. And yeah. So oh, that's right. Well, you were in the room watching them? <laughs> I was in the room oh, watching that's them. that's awful. Everyone was. You should have been outside the room. Yeah. No, every, it was a classroom oh. and we were all sitting down. That's awful. And we all watched everyone's auditions. So I was one of the last people to go and I go up and there's this teacher who, when he's angry, by the way, is one of the most frightening things on the face of the earth because his voice drops like two octaves and he's really loud because he knows how to project because he's an actor. Ah, and theater. 
It's just, it's terrified. <laughs> I go up and I'm, I'm getting ready. There's a guy I've never seen before. And I go up and I'm standing in front of these three teachers who it, it's very entertaining too because his wife was one of the other teachers and where he's massive she is small she is like less than i think five foot four she's like five foot two or something like that she's the small dainty little dancer and she just like smiles at you with heart eyes and so you have her sitting next to him all love and it just throws you off completely all love next to all like scariness but they knew me. So I'm going up there and I'm going to audition and Mr. Hansen is looking at me and he doesn't even look up from his notes. He's just writing something down and he goes, so we save the best for last. And then he looks up at me, right? <laughs> Over his glasses. Over his glasses. <laughs> with that critical like one eyebrow raised. <laughs> no pressure. And <laughs> wow. I'm like, I, um, I, I hope so. I, uh, maybe. I don't know. The best teachers that really uh, affect us in our lives are the ones, I think, that do two things. One, they tell you the honest truth, mm -hmm. and they push you to be better. Yes. Right? And you really respect that, because we can all do better. That's why weightlifters have spotters. We, we want to do 10, and you have someone there, and you're like, do three more. And they help you do three more. And the best teachers, like I've talked about before, Doc Shelton, you know, he was brutally honest. The worst thing you could do is <laughs> ask him his opinion. Yeah, because, never, wow, ever. Yeah. But if you ever think there's something about you that he doesn't like, he probably doesn't. And he'll tell you. And he'll tell you. Yeah. It was never mean spirited. It was like, well, this is the reality of what you're going to need to fix to be successful. But one of the things we talked about was learning the craft before you get involved in it. Mm -hmm. And when you understand the audition process, for example, in theater, and you understand all the rules and stuff. Not just of acting, but of how the theater world works. Yes. And how small it is and everything like that. Then you can decide at your own peril to take chances. And there was this one actress. What, what used to happen in, in Florida was that all the theaters got together and they had one audition for all their plays for the whole season at one time. So you were auditioning for all of your work in the Southeast for that year for all the theaters. And you would have an audition and then you'd have each theater company that was interested in you for their particular plays would call you back for a callback and then you'd do either more audition pieces or do readings from the plays that they were doing or something like that. So the first thing you wanted was to get a callback. And so you would do your best monologues, you know, and they would just sit there and, they, you know, you have to understand also a downside of theater is that there are hot plays that are really popular at that time mm -hmm. and everyone does the same monologues, mm -hmm. everyone. The best monologue I ever had, I got from an article out of a sports magazine that Howie Mandel wrote as a joke about going to a, a shuffleboard camp as a kid, right? It's like the worst. <laughs> I've actually, you did that monologue yes, for me. I've it, seen you perform it. That monologue got me into the fine arts college, out of the fine arts college. I did it at every competition, but it was something no one ever heard. So that's that was great. I knew what the rules were and I knew what people did. And so I chose to do it differently and that helped me. But there was this one actress, Lisa, she was just so good. She was one of these people that whenever she was on stage, you had to look at her, even mm -hmm. if she wasn't talking, right? Some people just have it, you know, and she has it. And she went to this audition. And for the first phase where you're doing the general audition for everybody, she's like, listen, you guys know me. I'm really too good to do this. If you want me, just, just call me back. And then she left. And everyone called her back. Like, that's a risky because she could have lost all the work for the seasons. Yeah. But it was so, you have to understand, these people are sitting there. It's kind of like listening to the same song from different artists over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And then someone gets in and goes, yeah, you want to really talk to me, schedule some time. 
that's what she did. And it was a great chance and risk because one, she was really, really, she could back it up, right? She was really good. But it, she set herself apart from everybody in a, like a room full of white noise all day. She like sang a song and it was just like, what, what, what? I get, yeah. oh, right, Lisa, I want to see her. I want to see her just because she had the balls to do that in front of me. That's one of those things where even if you follow your muse, you know what the rules are and then you can decide where to take risks. And she took a risk and it was really, really successful. Well, and also in theater, if you're willing to take a risk to say that in front of the casting directors for the entire season, for the entire Southeast, then you're probably willing to take a risk on stage when the director asks you to. Yeah, right. You're fearless. And that's what you want as an actor is is being fearless. That was actually my problem as I was not fearless. I would take risks, but I was not fearless. And that was really a detriment to me. I was definitely not fearless. <laughs> I was way too self-conscious. I literally had in a play that I did, I had not only the director... But every single actor that I knew tell me to do one thing because they thought it would be funny and I was too chicken to do it. That's that's how self-conscious I was. So it's probably a good thing I'm not an actor anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing that you can do is you have to look for opportunities. When I worked at Nickelodeon, the very first job I had was as a gopher, which is like a runner. Pond scum is another way to think of it. Um, I mean, that's how I still think of you. <laughs> Dad. Love. <laughs> so what do runners do? Well, they run errands for the people, and they also make the breakfast and lunch trays for the craft services is what it's called. And those are the tables that have the food for the cast and crew. And then you get lunch orders and all that other stuff. So a lot of people would look at that and go, I just want to get out of this role. And because of the situation in any sort of company, unless someone leaves, there's no position open, mm -hmm. right? So I was stuck in that role for a while because no one, it was on the best show. It was Clarissa Explains It All. No one wanted to leave that show. So I was like, oh, all right. So I was a runner a really long time. And no one had any sympathy for me for the right reasons because everyone at every level in TV that I'd ever worked with was a runner at some point. So mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, it kind of sucks. Anyway, I remember thinking, well, I could be irritated by this or I could use it to my advantage. And one of the things I realized is that like janitors, runners have keys to everything so to speak. So janitors, it's funny, like, you know, you and I couldn't get into like the president's office, but a janitor can because they have to clean it, mm -hmm. right? And oftentimes the lowest level position has the most access to things. Well, it's kind of like administrative assistants as well. They're up on the C-suite level of any kind of corporate entity. They're going to be there for a reason. And you just trust that they're there for a reason. That reason could be that they don't want to sit at their desk, <laughs> right. but you trust that they're there for a reason. Well, and they have access to like the, the CEO's, you know, credit cards because they're doing all the accounting for them or whatever for travel anyway so there's a certain level of trust and it's interesting it's like it's inverse than the way you would think it would be but the one thing i realized with with being a runner is i had a ghost key to every department because i was allowed to go anywhere because i was a nobody that had to get lunches for everybody like if i worked in wardrobe there's no reason i should be in the audio department right but if i'm a runner i can be anywhere so what i would do is i would purposely go places while they were working and quietly watch them as an excuse to get their lunches. For example, I would I would know when they were on a break, when they were doing a live game show in the control room. I would wait till they're in between takes, and then I'd go in. I know I was 15 minutes before they were wrapping, and I'd say, hey, I'm just here to get lunches. I'll just wait here and wait till you guys are done. And so they'd go, oh, okay, we're almost done. And then I got to watch how a live control room worked during production. And then I would go into audio and go, I'm here early to get whatever. And I'd watch them edit things and put in sound effects. And I did that with the graphics department. I hung out in the wardrobe places. 
I did that all the time because it was an opportunity, again, to learn the craft. I learned more stuff being a runner than I ever did after that because I moved up the food chain after that. But it was the greatest learning opportunity because I took advantage of it. I hung out in the editing suite a lot and talked to the editors and they were awesome. And it was just a great experience because I saw it as an opportunity. Well, and if you're personable and you're in that role, not only do you have access to everywhere on the set, but you also are the go-to guy for a lot of important people. They'll just be like, oh, well, Pete will take care of it or Pete will do that. And then you're someone who's known with all the important people while still having access to a lot of different places. Yeah. Anyway, so it's one of those things where you want to learn the business and you want to look for opportunities to take advantage of learning opportunities. And then once you understand the business, you want to know what rules you can try to break and see if it works. And that's the same for literally any kind of creative work, whether it's writing or painting or creating films. My college roommate was a painter. She was an artist. And I asked her whether it was really necessary to learn all of the original stuff if you had your own vision. And she's like, absolutely, you have to learn the rules in order to know how you want to break them to get your point across. Yeah, the reason the rules exist, and I know it goes against the teenage sort of, I'm going to do my own thing. There's certain value to that, honestly. There's been a lot of teen successes that have broken into a, a market and done really successfully because it's a fresh voice, but they still never broke the rules of the market. you know. And, and the rules are there because they are successful. I remember someone talking to me once about how much they wanted to change the way the corporate structure was. And I said, well, the only way you can do that is president. And once you become president, you won't want to break it because you're president. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's just one of those things that if you want to learn how to hit a baseball, well, there are proven methods to do that. And it's up to you to either learn them and then figure out if you really can. You know, there's proven methods to every business. Part of it is work ethic and the other part is talent. And you need both of them. And then you need a little luck. And then you need to like keep trying until you're the only one standing. And, and that's kind of the, the hard part that a lot of people give up on. You know, a lot of people, it's a difference between, again, having an idea to do something and actually committing to do something. And the last piece about following your muse is that everyone's going to have an opinion and you kind of <laughs> have to, to weigh which opinions are valuable in your life. You have to kind of find out the person you or persons you trust the most. Stephen King in his, his book about writing talks about writers want to write for a person or a single audience and he writes for his wife and that's it so if his wife doesn't like it then he knows it's not good that's the only voice he trusts everything else is just some people will be like his wife and like the book and some people won't be like his wife and not like the book and he doesn't really care about any of those because history has shown that when his wife likes it it's successful and so you kind of have to find that person that gives you again like the good teachers we talked about gives you honest feedback that pushes you in the right direction. It is definitely true that everyone is going to have an opinion if you're doing something creative. I think when you told people that you wanted to be a writer, instead of people saying, congratulations, I can't wait to read your book, they said, oh, well, here's my idea for a story. This happened repeatedly. I mean, it's not like it happened once. It happened with almost every single person we talked to. Yeah, and I think because everyone has a story in them, honestly, they see the world and experience the world enough that they know, oh, I know what the world needs. Like when I was writing screenplays, same thing happened to me. I'd have people come up and say, you know, it'd be a great screenplay. And I'd be like, well, go ahead and write it. And they're like, well, why don't you write it? And I'm like, I have 20 ideas in my head I want to write. I don't need your ideas, you know? Mm -hmm. And it is interesting how when, yeah, when I told people I was going to write novels, I got a lot of people tell me about the novels I should write. And I'm like, well, I want to write novels that I want to write. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of it. 
Thank you for the feedback. Yeah, and they may be great ideas, but since they're not my ideas, I won't know how to tell them. Anyway, it, it is interesting. And having a unique voice and perspective is really important if you're going to tell stories. No, it is. It has to be unique enough within a, a framework that people want. And we talked about that again before. But you don't want to be too different. You want to be different within the, uh, the context of, oh, this is a space opera, but it's a space opera with monkeys. <laughs> All right. So the, the, the wild card there is monkeys, not space opera. So that's following your muse, Dorothea. It is. Yeah. So it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to put in the hard work. Every writer would love for it to be their full-time job. Me too. I'm one of those people. But I have to take it right now as a a part-time job or as a second job because I already have a full-time job. So when I come home, I put in another six to eight hours every day, almost every day, of writing, of working on this business one way or the other. And that's just what's required for me to go from a hobby to a second job and from a second job to a first job. So you have to work twice as hard, three times as hard as you do at your regular job because you wanted to replace that job at some point, maybe. That's true. I have been working hard, not smart or effective, but man, (laughs) hard. So Dorothea, do you have any recommendations this week? I would say to check out Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. It is a very interesting book about a dystopian future where books are outlawed. Dun, dun, dun. So Uh, check it out. All right. My recommendation is a book. I was talking to you earlier about catechizing myself and enveloping myself in that. And one of the books that really helped me is The Four Witnesses by Rod Bennett. A lot of people's church understanding ends at the Acts of the Apostles. And then they look at and interpret revelations in a variety of different ways. What's great about the four witnesses is that it talks about the early church fathers in their own writings. So if you want to know what the followers of the apostles did, what they believed, and the the challenges and the consequences of those beliefs, then this book is really, really amazing. It goes through Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, and Arrhenius of Lyons. And they're great early church fathers, and their experiences are, are really inspiring. But it, it's the gap between the Bible and uh, the church, especially the Catholic church that we have today, because like we've talked about um, privately, Justin Martyr's letters about what the church believed is the Mass today. So that's our podcast. That is episode three, season two, Dorothea. Knocking them out of the park. Although, if I'm honest, I kind of feel like people are going to hate me after this podcast. Oh, well, that, uh, what if they hated you after the first one? Well, I'd be okay with that. After <laughs> this one, I think people are going to hate me a little bit because I was kind of venting at the start of it because I've been spending too much time on the internet. <laughs> and nothing makes you disparage at the state of the world and humanity like spending too much time on the internet. Yeah, or watching news channels. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't think they'll hate you, Dorothea. They may like you a little less, but then they'll come to love you, as we all do. Eh, well, we'll see. <laughs> if you want to comment, you can comment on this podcast in the comment section. That's why they call it that. Get your wondering. It? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Little, I never would have guessed. Little tip there. Fun fact. And if you want to email us, you can email us at Pete at petebauerbooks.com that's pete b-a-u-e-r books.com or you can rank us rate us something us on itunes which would be nice hopefully well hopefully well i'll leave that up to them (laughs) all right so that's it dorothea we will see you guys next time bye